Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing terrific, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. So today we are continuing on our annual tradition of having the outgoing ASCS president as a guest, and we are truly honored to have Dr. Peter McDonald as a guest. Given his role and his striking series of accomplishments, Dr. McDonald will need no introduction to most listeners. Dr. McDonald is currently the chair of orthopedic surgery uh, for the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada, as well as being the chief research innovation officer for the Pan Am Clinic. He holds multiple roles in Winnipeg, including being the team physician for the Winnipeg Jets, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. He's passed around to the Canadian Orthopedic Society. Um, he's published over 150 research manuscripts and is perhaps best known for his series of randomized clinical trials that he orchestrated, including the Remplissage trial, the biceps and desis trial, the scope versus open lateral condylitis trial, the chromioplasty trial, the single versus double row trial, etc. Having tried to do some randomized studies myself, it's very difficult um, to, to, to truly convey the difficulty and complexity in executing these types of studies, but the results you get from them are so powerful. And so each of these is a major contribution. And we all really owe Dr. McDonald and his group for their perseverance in completing these studies, as well as for her service in leading our organization. Dr. McDonald, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much for the intro. I hope I can share something of uh, use to the membership, and I appreciate uh, you guys doing this and all the value it adds to our membership. So let's start at the beginning. Dr. McDonald, tell us, tell us what led you to orthopedics and to shoulder surgery. Uh, well, I guess, you know, like most people, um, it was an athletic injury that got me interested in orthopedics. I did have a brother-in-law, uh, actually two brothers-in-law who were orthopedic surgeons, so they tweaked my interest. But I, uh, I suffered a, a grade 3 AC separation when I was like in uh, first year of university. Um, playing for a uh, intramural football team, and so after that, I got interested in in orthopedics and you know the process of value, <clears throat> excuse me, evaluating athletic injuries. And I, I thought that you know it's something I, I probably would like to do, but first things first, and you know you got to get into med school and all that, so it's a long haul. But uh, along the way, I just grew, grew stronger and stronger in terms of my like for orthopedics. So so. Before we move on from that, just tell us, you had a grade three separation. Did you have it fixed or not? You know, it was funny. I, it was medicine against um, dentistry um, when it actually happened. And uh, I was quarterback for medicine, and uh, I got sacked by a dentist. And uh, I was lying there writhing in pain. You know, in first-year med school, I didn't know anything about shoulder injuries. And uh, the dentist thought he knew something, and, and he actually did the Hippocratic thing on me where he put his foot in my axilla and started pulling on my arm, thinking my shoulder was dislocated, right? So probably just accentuated the grade three and turned it into a grade five. But <laughs> I, I, I ended up not getting it fixed. I had a few opinions, and I have a bump to uh, prove it to this day. So, so is that does that play into your discussion with patients when they present with separations for you to say, I, I have this injury and my shoulder functions well enough for me to do shoulder surgery? Well, it's funny. Last night I was covering the NHL game here in Winnipeg. Uh, we won incidentally beating uh, Carolina, but uh, one of our players is out with a grade three separation right now as we speak. And uh, 
I was showing him my bump. We were comparing bumps last night. So it does come in handy when you're explaining the options to patients. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I'm kind of living proof, although I don't, I'm obviously not a high-level athlete, but uh, that you can function fairly well with non-operative treatment. I think shoulder surgery is pretty high-level athlete, don't you think, Pete? <laughs> I think that counts. And I also think it's really funny that we have a dentist, or at least a dental student, to thank for having Dr. McDonald as a shoulder surgeon. It's like you never know what pathway you'll take through life, you know? It's amazing. <laughs> now, are you originally from Winnipeg or um, or no? And, and what led you to settle there? And is this the permanent <laughs> spot for you? Uh, yeah, I mean... Um... Most Winnipeggers are from Winnipeg. Canadians are a little bit different than Americans. We don't move around as much. Um, so yeah, my my parents were uh, from Winnipeg, and uh, my grandfather came here from Halifax. He's he was the first one to make his way out west to here because he was worked. He grew up on a farm in in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is on the east coast, and uh, there wasn't much work available at the time. So he just hopped the train and kind of got off at Winnipeg and. There was more work here, and it was, as I guess, it was a happening place in the uh, 20s and 30s, um, uh, the post uh, World War II or World War I, World War One uh, uh, boom that was uh, being experienced. So that's why he got off here. So tell us, you know, you've obviously ascended to the to, to become president of the ACS. You know, many of our listeners are early on in their careers, and they're just joining a committee for the first time or they're interested to participate, tell us your pathway. How did you get to where you are now over the years? Like what, what committees did you serve on? What are the roles that you have in the ASCS? What pathway did you take to the presidential line? Well, I mean, I've been lucky along the way. I, I had great mentorship. Uh, Rich Hawkins, um, did, I was his last fellow in Canada before he went to the U.S. And uh, Pete Fowler and, and him and Tony Miniacci were my fellowship directors. So I had three stars. That I was actually Tony's first fellow. So uh, he was just a, a young junior staff. We're actually the same age, and he was junior staff at the time. So he was just learning the ropes, but also had a lot to teach to me because he had just finished his fellowships. But Hawk was like already very prominent at the time, and um, was going down the Vale to join uh, Richard Stedman at the time. But uh, I managed to catch uh, the last bit of Hawk's uh, time in Canada, and then moved on to Pete Feller and Tony Miniacci. But anyways. The great mem mentorship I had from Hawk carried on. Hawk and I kind of got along really well. I did a few papers for him, and uh, before you know it, he was—he uh, had one of my papers on the podium at uh, the closed meeting in Seattle uh, in the early 1990s. And he said, "You know, you really should be a member of the society." And at the time, it was only um, 110, 120 members, so it was really, um, you know, a very core. I guess it was a bit of an old boys' club. As, but he managed to get me in, and um, I really like the society because, I mean, to be able to sit down and have coffee with Dr. Neer or uh, Dr. Rockwood and uh, rub elbows with all these legends in shoulder surgery was really inspiring. So uh, I think along the way, I, I was lucky enough to get in early. I served on a number of committees um, when Bill Mallon got to be uh, in the presidential line. He asked me to be his program chair for the meeting and then I was a program chair for another uh, both the closed and an opening meeting open meeting and then uh, I, I ended up serving 10 years as um, associate editor for the journal under Bill as well so um, a lot of uh, 
good friends within the society uh, kind of went to bat for me, you know, mentioning Rob Bell as well and Jeff Abrams, um, guys uh, who uh, <clears throat> I looked up to through the Hawkins Society, which was also a, a society that really inspired me. So uh, I think that you know, for young members, I think you just got to establish relationships and uh, and just express interest and not be afraid to uh, dive into a, a difficult task uh, or a difficult committee and just uh, show some energy and some enthusiasm. And before you know it, one thing leads to another. And uh, um, it was, uh, you know, over time just getting uh, exposure to these opportunities that I was very fortunate to uh, move up the ladder. It's amazing. Some of the names you mentioned, just well, really all the names you mentioned, just legends in in shoulder surgeries with Fowler Sports Medicine, just unbelievable uh, people that have, you know, touched your career and and speaks to, you know, who you are and and the influence you've had on so many others as well. Can you tell us, you know, with your year as president and um, presidency is is the one year, but you do a lot leading up to it, and you'll obviously do a lot in the subsequent years. What do you think has been your most major accomplishment or accomplishments during the presidential year for ASES? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, I was just lucky again to be uh, surrounded by really energetic, good people. I mean, there's uh, uh, Peter and, and Rachel, both of you are uh, examples of that. But, um, you know, we sat down at the end of the year, Anna, our executive director, and I, and we listed about 35 things that went on during the year that I was president, and not to take credit for any of them more than others, but it was a busy year. There's lots going on. And again, credit goes to young, energetic people like Chris Clifto, uh, Peter Chalmers, uh, you know, Clifto and the Doc Matters thing, the Image Library. Peter, you were very involved. Um, the Traveling Fellowships, uh, the Indian American, adding to the list, uh, uh, bylaws, reorganization under Jed Kuhn. Uh, the near circle activity, the slap lesions under Nick Verma and Heinz Haneke, the Hawkins International Award, and you know the list goes on. But there, I think that my main thing was to mentor young people, number one, and number two, to increase the uh, value for membership to make ASES something that you know when you get that checkout or you get your visa out and uh, give it to the society. Uh, you know, for your annual fees that you know you're getting your money's worth through various things. And so I just wanted to increase the value for membership and make it more of an attractive society than just kind of paying your dues and going to the annual meeting. Well, certainly that's a list of major improvements to uh, membership. You know, one of the things that I think you mentioned that was super interesting is you mentioned when you joined the ASCS that there were about 100 members you know, I, I heard you mention just at another meeting we were on earlier tonight that there's about 1,300 members now. So we've had, you know, a, over 10x growth, you know, in a relatively short period of time. What challenges do you think that, that poses for the ACS? And what, are, what do you think maybe more generally are the major challenges that the ACS is facing um, going forward from, you know, from your presidency into, the, into those that follow you? Yeah, I mean the growth is is nothing but positive. We, you know, in 1989 we had six committees. In 2023 had 26 committees and uh, task forces and liaison committees to the AAOS. So the society has really grown. With that, uh, it's an extra. Every time you grow, it's a little extra work for the staff. So you have to grow the staff at the same time, make sure they can keep up to you. So I think the the biggest problem we have, 
is if you grow too fast, then you overburden your staff, then you lose good people. So we have to recognize that we do have really good people in our office under Anna's uh, leadership. And we we want to keep those people, um, you know, gainfully employed, but also in, interested and engaged, and not burn them out. So, as we grow the society, we have to be careful not to grow in such a way that we we lose staff, because a lot of these, as you know, a lot of these calls are in the evening, and uh, so it ends up that a staff member could be, you know, doing calls five nights a week. So, um, I just have to be a little bit careful with the growth, but it's it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. It just has to be done the right way. Um, and I think the society will continue to grow. We have to ask ourselves, are we going to be like Anna? I don't think we're ever going to be like Anna with 6,000 members. Um, we we may you know be leveling off in terms of our growth. This may be you know that kind of a sweet spot for us. Um, but um, we do want it to still be a bit of an accomplishment to become an active member of ASES. We don't want to, you know everybody who signs up be to be an active member. So with that in mind, I think we may see a leveling off of the growth, but who knows? I think that's not for me to decide. Now, outside ASES, what do you think are the major challenges facing shoulder surgeons and the field of shoulder surgery moving forward? And healthcare in general is in a very interesting place, um, I think, worldwide, let alone in North America, and obviously major differences between Canada and the U.S. But specific to shoulder surgeons, what, what are the biggest challenges facing, you know, our members, our, our colleagues? Yeah, I think that uh, our um, society um, kind of helps members deal with those challenges. And the, the challenge is related to... Uh, to CME, you know, how which meetings do you go to, uh, which societies do you belong to, uh, which uh, what uh, what is important to you, how do you keep up with things, uh, and in in that regard, uh, I think um, uh, you know we can offer a lot through ASES, but there's also a number of shoulder meetings that have popped up all over the place yearly, so I think that uh, it's it's the difficult thing is for a young shoulder surgeon. Who may have limited time that he can take he or she can take away from their practice, you know which meetings do I go to, uh, what do I become involved with, and how do I, I maintain my skills and maintain my knowledge base the best to serve my patients? So that's a one challenge. And the other thing that's kind of ubiquitous everywhere, and it's not just unique to shoulder surgery, of course, is just dealing with the system overall, like um, dealing with you know the change in in technology, keeping up with new technology, dealing with medical economics, dealing with, uh, you know, what remuneration issues, dealing with the politics related to medicine, advocacy, things like that. So I think that, you know, a lot of us would be just happy if we could get up in the morning, go operate on people and have grateful patients after. But unfortunately, medicine is not that simple. There's a lot of stuff in terms of paperwork and, and office management and biz, running a business and keeping up with things and employing staff. These are all things that I think we're not really taught very well in residency and in fellowship uh, that you have to learn on the fly. And uh, it can become quite stressful for not just shoulder surgeons, uh, like just everybody in medicine in general. Now, I'm hoping you could elaborate a little bit on that. You know, most of our listeners are located in the, in the United States. You know, you're, um, 
you're obviously located in Canada, and we're hoping you can tell us a little bit about the Canadian healthcare system, how it differs from what you know about the U.S. system from the perspective of an orthopedic shoulder surgeon. You know, what, what's better, what's worse? Um, give us maybe a little bit of insight on how what you just mentioned is different maybe for you than it might be for someone practicing in, 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 in the United States. Yeah, like with every system, there's pros and cons. I'm not sure if there's a perfect system in the world. You look around the world, and uh, I thought, you know, looking around the world, I kind of tweaked my interests looking at different systems. And we had a fellow who came from Switzerland. I thought that was the perfect system. He said, no, 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 there was all sorts of problems. So it seems like there's problems everywhere. Um, so I'm not sure if there's a perfect solution to how to deliver medicine. However, you know, there's pros and cons. I think if you want state-of-the-art cutting-edge treatment, it's easier to get that in the U.S. than it is in Canada because in Canada we tend to be, you know, lagging a little bit behind because it takes a while to get the state-of-the-art stuff into the hospitals, get it approved and get it funded and stuff. Not that we can't do it, but it's just kind of you got to go through all the barriers. And, of course, you have FDA. We have not only FDA we have to wait for, but Health Canada approval, so different uh, levels of uh, approval for uh, new implants. But the system in Canada, I guess it's probably from a gross macroeconomic point of view, it's, it's probably good value for the dollar to a certain extent uh, in that um, we spend about 11% of our GDP on healthcare and everybody is covered. So if you have a heart attack, you know, you're you're in good shape. You're going to be well looked after. If you have cancer, you're going to be well looked after. But if you have something elective like a, uh, you need a knee replacement or a hip replacement or a shoulder replacement, then you, unfortunately the system is such that you're going to have to wait a while and the weights going to, are going to vary. Now, politicians are, are aware uh, that uh, people are waiting too long. They're going to lose votes. So they try and each politician tries to bring in initiatives to shorten the wait times. But uh, it's just a system that uh, is, if there's only so many dollars and already our provincial budget, more than 50% of our provincial budget is spent on health care, so that leaves 50% for, for roads, education, everything else. So medicine is expensive and keeping up with new technology. Like if 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 the cost of doing medicine is increased by 7% a year and your GDP only increases by 2%, there's a gap there. And how do you make that up, right? So uh, these are challenges I think we, we all face, not just in Canada, but everywhere. But our waits are definitely longer. Um, but uh, we're still able to, uh, you know, we're still able to offer our patients good treatment, just uh, the waits are a bit longer. Let me ask you a question that is um, a little bit outside the norm, but we have you on here. You're so experienced. You you know our system in the U.S., you know your system in Canada. And following up on what Pete asked you, what drives you crazy about U.S. healthcare or the U.S. system? Like what if you're reading on social media or in the news, or you hear about something at a meeting, what just drives you crazy about the way we in the U.S. do things? Um, that's a good question. I think, again, you guys do a lot of things very well. Like if I uh, money wasn't an object and I wanted to get the very state-of-the-art treatment, I would probably go somewhere in the States. Um, however, uh, from macroeconomics point of view, like the cost of your implants are quite a bit more. The same implant in Canada is sometimes half the price of what you're paying in the U.S. Uh, and why is it that way? It's hard to explain, but I think there's just more of a cutting uh, competitive uh, type uh, atmosphere up here that 
unless you lower your price, you don't get your implant into the hospital or in the surgery center. So uh, you can see that there is probably what drives me crazy is, and uh, there's no knock on your system, but there's probably some fat to be trimmed in terms of the overall cost of the system uh, compared to some other systems around the world. That would be my only beef with the American system. And, uh, and of course, you know, the, the fact that uh, uh, some people may not have coverage compared to others. I, I know that Obamacare and stuff like that, I'm not going to get into the politics of the thing, but, uh, you know, historically there's been different levels of coverage that uh, have uh, left, left some people with less than desirable care, but I know that there's efforts to correct that. Yeah, I am. Um, when I agree with you, the cost of the implants is a well, the thing that, that I think is interesting, what you mentioned, is that there is huge heterogeneity depending on which hospital you're at as to the cost of the implant. And that, that is something that doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, if you try and go, for instance, and buy any other product, then there's, because there's competition, there's relative homogeneity in the price. But the hospital systems, because they sign contracts that they can't disclose how much they pay, they really can't. You know, they they can't get benchmarking. It's 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 that that has been a huge challenge, I think, for our system that I don't right. I don't know how we're going to solve. And I think it's a it's great for you to point it out. Um, it's interesting when you talk to the implant manufacturers, though, they often will say, you know, we 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 use that money for R and D, and the only way we can get that money is through the United States because we're our margins are so thin everywhere else. And obviously, that's a <laughs> You'd you'd have to. They won't disclose to you how much they actually pay for R and D, but I do think they're using some of that to develop new products. For sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's 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 part of a, something that you and I and Rachel can't solve. But uh, there's definitely some fat to be trimmed if you look at the the global picture of it. Let me ask you. You know, just on this topic, as Pete mentioned, it's funny. Even within our system. Depending on the patient's insurance, I can do certain cases that involve certain implants in facility A, but I'm not allowed to do those in facility B because facility B does not get reimbursed for the implants based on that patient's insurance. And this really boils down into hospital facilities versus ambulatory surgery centers. And if they have commercial insurance, typically implants are covered anywhere but if they have government insurance, often the implants are not covered in the ambulatory surgery center. And so you're forced to do them in a hospital setting. Do you have, is there that in Canada? Is there private and public system where you're allowed to do certain cases in one location versus another, certain implants in one location versus another, or is that not really an issue? It's not as much of an issue um, because most like more than 85% of our patients are covered under the public system. Um, now you may have individual centers that have their own little political things that you have to hoops that you have to jump through to get the implant in. But um, one of the things you can do when you're trying to get your implant into hospital A is to just point out that hospital B is, is using it without a problem. So, uh, but we also are, are, we we function under a regional health authority, so a lot of our approvals are region wide, so cover the entire um, region that we live in. So it's not just one hospital; it's like under all the hospitals. So you fight it at that level, and then once you get it through, it should be able to be used at all the places. Um, 
having said that, um, yeah, it's not easy to get the new stuff in. It, and like I say, we, we probably lag behind the U.S. in terms of, uh, you know, a new exciting toy that comes out. It takes a while. You know, you kind of have to uh, do all the paperwork, but also try and justify the, the additional cost uh, in terms of the benefit for the patient. So that takes this sometimes takes a while. Well, let's, um, I, I'd like to move on to something, you know, that's beyond your role as president and beyond, you know, your knowledge of the Canadian healthcare system, which is, you know, you've, one of the major contributions you've made, and really, I think your group has made, have been this series of randomized clinical trials. And I mentioned the list of them, and they're, each of them is like a landmark study that's potentially at least practice changing, or at the very least confirms that, you know, there's multiple different ways of doing something that are acceptable. Tell us a little bit about how this started. I mean, did you, whose idea was this? How did you guys get started with this? You know, how did you, how did you accomplish this? How did you execute this series of studies? Yeah, well, thanks for uh, the plug. Um, it's it's something we're quite proud of in Canada. It's not just me. There's, it tends to be something we identify ourselves with. Um, and I guess, how did it start? Well, when I was, Finishing my training, there was uh, two individuals that went on to do their master's in epidemiology that kind of inspired our, you know, cross Canada group of uh, sport medicine shoulder surgeons to do these trials. And that'd be uh, Sandy, the late Sandy Kirkley, uh, who uh, was really a go-getter. And when she joined ASCS, she was someone who stood up and kind of questioned the, the dogma, sometimes raising some eyebrows, but. Uh, she also was very strongly a, a proponent of uh, randomized clinical trials and actually taught us a lot about how to do them, how to administer them, how to set them up, and how the, to make them publishable. The other is Nick Motati, who's a sport medicine physician in Calgary, also uh, with his master's in epidemiology, who, who came from the kind of the same sort of uh, training as Sandy in terms of the epidemiology. So. Uh, those two individuals led some great trials early on, um, uh, the radio frequency heat probe, things like that. Um, so that uh, we we kind of when Sandy uh, passed away, unfortunately in a plane crash, we were uh, kind of felt like we should pick up the ball and keep running with it, and uh, we we decided uh, collectively. And I got to credit uh, my partners across the country, uh, especially Peter Lapner in, in uh, Ottawa who have helped me and collaborated with our center so many times on, on these trials, but we just decided to uh, put our heads, heads down and do it. Now, why can we do it in Canada more easily maybe than the U.S. Is, is because I think Canadians, because of the nature of our system, they become quite tolerant to different things, not only wait times, but they become tolerant to, uh, I think they're more apt to sign up for research trials that involve randomization than American patients would be. It's a cultural thing, I guess, um, but it seems like we can consent patients a little bit easier than um, our friends to the South. So uh, that combined with the fact that uh, we just kind of slug it out and get things done, it does take a long time. It's an average of seven years to get a good RCT done. And sometimes by the time you finish, the question is no longer relevant. But uh, some of the questions uh, are still relevant, such as, uh, you know, chromioplasty, rhomboplasty, things like that, double single row. So uh, we've been quite fortunate to uh, get these trials done. Now, Mo Bandari is also a uh, legendary up here for uh, his epidemiology skills. 
uh, would tell us that our trials are way too small, that, you know, 150, yeah, 100 to 150 uh, uh, patients in a trial is not enough. That he's, his modern thinking is, you know, we should have thousands of patients in the trial, just like the internal medicine drug trials. So maybe that's the way it's going to go. That's easier said than done. But um, we got a lot of skilled people up here who have guided us along the way, and we're very fortunate. Yeah, Bandari gave a great talk on that at the ACS uh, closed meeting several years ago, and I think he's right, but the the problem, I think, and I would be curious to hear your thoughts on this, and I have a follow-up to this maybe before that, but you know, that really constrains the number of questions you can answer, right? Like, there's only so many questions that can be addressed in studies of that size that have to involve that many centers. So I, I think that that's a fair criticism, but I think it also is really... Like, there's just some questions you can't answer that way, and those questions are still of clinical importance. Like, do, do you agree with that, or do you think I'm off base? No, no, I totally agree. Like, we have a the reason Peter and Lapner and I ended up collaborating so so much is that we tended to be able to sit down and agree on protocols. We, we early on tried to have, like, 12, 15 centers involved, and we couldn't agree on the protocol. We couldn't agree on the inclusion criteria. We couldn't agree on the question, uh, the you know, what operation we're going to do. So the more people you involve, the more complicated it gets. Now, big, huge credit to um, Al Getgood, who's conducting a massive trial in the ACL world uh, of 1,200 people on uh, the lateral extraticular tenodesis. So he's managed to pull it off. He's got several countries involved um, in terms of centers of enrollment. But the more people you have, the more centers you have, the more complicated it gets, and uh, it takes more work, for sure. But uh, I think it's a fair criticism, but sometimes it's easier said than done. I want to ask you about the chromioplasty study specifically. You know, this is a this I think is a very interesting one because maybe, and you can tell me if I've laid it out incorrectly, but there are I think now four randomized clinical trials that have compared, you know, a chromioplasty versus chromioplasty with cuff. And the overall gestalt of the four trials at short-term follow-up was no difference. But you've recently published long-term follow-up on your study that shows that there is a difference in reoperation rate. Um, and I've, you know, we've talked about this a fair amount at my place because Bob Tajan, my partner, is the, you know, deputy editor at JSCS or JBJS, and um, you know, he was I, he he I know fought for that study, and I think rightly so because I think it's a really important one. It's a hard one to do. So here's my question for you. Why do you think the findings are different at long term, and are you doing an acromioplasty for your cuffs right now? Yeah, our short term thanks. Um, our short term results. Uh, the original article, about oh, ten years ago, didn't show much difference. The reoperation rate was trending to the to be higher in the no acromioplasty group, but it wasn't statistically significant. But our long term has demonstrated that there is a significant difference. And I think the difference is why why are we showing it and the others aren't? If you break down the other studies, most of the other studies, uh, if you break down the morphology of the chromium they're dealing with, they're dealing with a predominantly type one and type two acromium. Um, whereas, and and a lot of the studies, like I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Tony Romeo's study, Gary Gartsman's study, the type three acromiums were virtually excluded. So. We we tended to have a fairly significant percentage of type three acromiums in our study, and that's where I think that you're going to show the biggest difference and the the need for doing acromioplasty. So yes, I do it on most cases now, uh, and uh, I do think you know that it, it improves my visualization. 
it still makes sense to me from a you know just an overall biologic point of view uh, of decompressing the cuff uh, at the same time as you're repairing it but uh, there's going to be more studies the jury's still out to a certain degree on on you know uh, somebody's going to have to replicate this work to uh, really satisfy everybody. You know, I'd love to pick your brain on um, on not this particular study, but your thoughts on how, if it's even possible, to design a study on a very hot topic that's not only applicable to shoulder surgery, but really all of orthopedics, and that that's the topic of biologics. And um, right now, you know, PRP is probably brings up a visceral response in all three of us, for better or for worse. And it's such a hot topic among patients, among the public, among the, the you know, media, social media, mainstream media, et cetera. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of people, including orthopedic surgeons, who think the use of PRP for any indication is complete voodoo. There's never been a study to prove that it works. It's a cash pay process. And so, um, you know, the only people profiting or benefiting are the, the clinicians using it. And then there's another group of people that think PRP has specific indications, be it for lateral epicondylitis, mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis, et cetera. Do you think knowing that PRP and other biologics typically are cash pay, at, at least in the U.S., but I, my understanding is in Canada as well, that there is a feasible way to study any sort of actual clinical benefit of using a biologic for really any indication? That's a broad question, but you're the, you're the king of doing trials that answer tough questions. So I'm curious because this is such a hot topic amongst all of us. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. The, this is something that really needs more study. Um, and I've become a believer in PRP just because a lot of my high-level athletes come to me, pro athletes, high-level amateur athletes, and ask for it. And I see some amazing results when you use it in certain situations. Now, that doesn't prove anything, but I think it's lending itself to some good RCTs. But the thing is with PRP, as you know, it's all over the map. PRP can be a number of different preparations. Um, it, the technology keeps uh, changing as to you know what leukocyte count you want, all that stuff. So if you can standardize it uh, across a bunch of centers and do one specific injury, let's say just start off with femoral-sided grade 2 MCL tear or something like that, and, and do PRP versus sham, like a saline injection in those, and and just study just start with something where you can standardize it and keep it as pure as possible. I think that you know that if you're able to pull that off, then it, that kind of one study would follow after another, and you could kind of lend some science to the whole thing. I do think there's something there. It's just it's just very hard to prove because there hasn't been very good studies so far. Do you do you I, think, with respect to PRP, that you need to show a disease modifying effect for? The treatment to be of value? Or do you think symptom modification is enough? Because I think that's, again, another, the, the most popular use of PRP is for mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis. And we yeah. all know you're not going to show a disease modifying effect, be it on x-ray, MRI, etc. But there's a lot of patients that swear by it from a, from a clinic modifying or symptom modifying effect. And for them, that's enough. And for clinicians, that's enough. It keeps them out of the operating room. It's a it's a low risk, low morbidity procedure, and kind of everyone's happy, um, except for 
a lot of the people who think that it's voodoo and the clinicians doing it are just doing it to make money. Do you, do you think that to justify the value, we need disease modification or is symptom modification enough? I think symptom modification is enough. Um, we all know that that's the most important thing. Uh, you're never going to be able to really show, as you just said, the uh, modification of the disease process and the natural history, or that's going to be more difficult to show. But I think if you have, but the, the secret is to control that type of study as much as possible, keep it pure, keep it the same preparation, and have a control where they're, they're getting a sham or a placebo. And, and, you know, do that study with several hundred people with the same type of, same stage of arthritis. And, uh, you know, that's where we need more science. And, and the problem is there's just not enough uh, level one studies, that's all. I Yeah, I think that's, those are really wise words. Can I comment, Rachel? I mean, I think that you're, um, that you're totally in the, heading in the right direction here. The issue I think we have is that, you know, like if you look at the studies that, that Dr. McDonald's group has executed, one of the critical things here is homogeneity in the intervention. So for instance, you know, in the biceps tendesis trial, my understanding is that like there's a relative homogeneity in the way that you were doing the tendesis. In the remposage trial, there's, you agree upon a protocol, we're all going to do the remposage this way for the study, um, et cetera, et cetera. You can't really do that for PRP because when you harvest PRP from different patients, you get different things. So like you can't, it's not like giving the patients aspirin where the aspirin's all the same, the PRP's all different, the stem cells are all different. And like, if you look in the literature, for instance, with stem cells, there's like a thousand X fold difference in how many stem cells you get from different patients. And even from the same patient, you can harvest multiple times, you get different products. So I'm just not really sure that there's a homogeneous intervention there that you can study, you know, in an organized way. I mean, that's like a, that's like a tenant of science is that if you're going to try and like the, the, that all the group, all the patients in one group have to be like the intervention all has to be the same. I guess my other, my other question for you, Rach, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this is I totally agree with Dr. McDonald that for us to use it clinically, all we need to show is that it improves the patient's clinical symptoms. But my question for you would be if it improves the patient's clinical symptoms, but we're not able to show any modification of the underlying disease, how does it work? Right? Because if, if we can't understand how it works, then we can't advance to the next stage to make it better. Um, and I feel like that's a, that's a fundamental tenor for everything we do is that not only do we have to show that it works, but we have to understand how it works so that we can then tinker with it to try and make it better. So what are your thoughts, Rach? I mean, do you think that that's important or not? Well, I think it's important, but I think with biologics and in particular PRP, we do have a good understanding as to how it works and certainly how it doesn't work. You know, the most common request I get is to regrow my meniscus or regrow my labrum or regrow my rotator cuff tear with PRP with patients coming with their open checkbooks. And I have to first dispel that, that that's actually what's going to happen. I have to let them know PRP and cellular treatments cannot regrow or regenerate your tissue. What we know is that the growth factors that get injected into the region uh, help reduce inflammation for the most part. There are some growth factors that Im increase inflammation, and sometimes that's what you want when you're, you know, for example, trying for a leukocyte-rich concentration of PRP, and you want to promote some inflammation. But we do know, I think, with a pretty good understanding how the the final product of PRP and even some of the cellular treatments work, 
the challenge is they're not regenerative with our current techniques and uh, probably won't be for, for a period of time until we can figure out how to enzymatically or, or scaffold wise augment them. Um, I, I think that, I think that you're spot on with heterogeneity and even PRP drawn from my blood at different times in the day with the same uh, processing system is going to potentially have different concentrations of red cells, white cells, platelets, and growth factors. So it's the hardest thing in the world to study. But I agree with with what Dr. McDonald said, and I'm sure you see this in, in your practice too, Pete. We, we, um, like we see great results in, in many patients. And whether it's placebo or not, quite frankly, I, I don't really care if it's placebo because if they're feeling better, that's what we want as their doctor. We want the patients to feel better. Um, and there are some MRI studies, with, especially with respect to tendon healing, ligament healing, not necessarily for osteoarthritis. Um, so we can see some, some intervention there. But I guess it's a long way of saying, I think we do know how these products work um, at a macro level. I think at a micro level, there's a lot of uncertainty because of the heterogeneity. We could go on forever about this. Yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, this Let, is a let's go. Super interesting topic. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, I'm just I'm yeah. on a I'm on a kick on this because on right now on social media there's there's a lot of discussion amongst some surgeons that I know and respect um, calling all docs who use PRP crooks and it's brought a lot of conversation and I can see how you know some uh, clinicians might see that because they might be treating patients who, for example, say they're joint replacement surgeons. So the patients that they're seeing are at the end of their road uh, with respect to their shoulder arthritis or their knee arthritis or hip arthritis. And, and they've been told by some local clinician, it might not even be a physician, that this $5,000 stem cell treatment will cure them. And obviously that's that you know sounds terrible to all of us. But I think we all have patients where we see some benefit to PRP and cellular treatments in some cases uh, particularly for specific indications with our athletes and for mild to moderate OA. Um, and so it's just, it's a hot topic, I think in general, but it's really hot in the ortho world right now. And it's very polarizing. Um, so I, you know, I just thought I'd bring it up for, you know, for yeah. discussion's sake. Yeah. I mean, some, some, at some point in time, somebody's going to have to do this study. And I think part of making the study as pure as possible is to remove the economics, just make it kind of free for all the patients who are involved in the study and as a, have an adequate control and just kind of remove the economic side to it and just kind of have pure science trying to demonstrate that uh, there is or there isn't a difference. I think, yeah, I mean, we, we shot, saw eventually, you know, the studies come out with debridement for osteoarthritis of the knee. So if we can do that, we can do the PRP as well. Well, super interesting topic. I, I can't think of a better person to talk about it with us than you, Dr. McDonald. I wanted to ask you, you know, you've you've accomplished a ton. Uh, many of our listeners are surgeons early in their careers, people that are just starting out. You know, what advice, you know, it sounds like you had great mentors that gave you great advice about how to get started. What advice would you give now to a young surgeon on how best to succeed? Well, I think, you know, um, do the little things right. Um, be energetic. Uh, demonstrate your interest. Uh, be eager to to help out, to get involved. Um, identify mentors, they, and they don't have to be world famous people. They could be just you know a surgeon down the hall, um, but have somebody to mentor you, somebody to talk things over with, and uh, 
just keep at it. And over time, you know, if you have little successes along the way, they, they kind of snowball and uh, eventually you find yourself in a position. I don't like to think about what I've done or, or, you know, kind of gloat over what I've done. I just kind of get up in the morning and kind of go to work and I enjoy going to work and doing what I do. And we have a great research staff, so it's fun to work with. And so you need to have fun doing whatever you're doing and need to feel like you want to get out of bed in the morning and go and do it. So um, I've been very fortunate uh, along the way, but uh, I I think that uh, lots of young people are perfectly capable of of, uh, achieving that and more just by kind of uh, identifying mentors and, and surrounding themselves with good people. One other question I wanted to ask you about younger surgeons in particular is training. Where do you see residency and fellowship training going over the next 5, 10, 20 years? There's a lot of discussion on competency-based training. Um, I know some programs in Canada already do that. In the U.S., most residencies are five and in some cases six years. Most people are doing one fellowship, but there's a big trend right now toward doing two fellowships or doing extra fellowship training. Do you foresee a change in how our residents and fellows are getting trained over, you know, over the next 5, 10, 15 years? Or do you feel that things are going to remain as they are? I think it's always changing. Like if I look at the way I was trained versus now, I mean, I went through an internship and internships, as everybody knows, don't exist anymore. But uh, things are also way more specialized now than when I went through. And I think that that path will probably continue. Not everybody has to be a super specialist, but the trend is to uh, to do more specialty training. Most of our Canadian graduates now do two fellowships, and I think one of the reasons they do that is because uh, th- there's so much to learn, and technical skills I think get honed at a fellowship level and not a residence level. Like I think at a residence level, you learn how to you know deal with trauma and maybe do some arthroplasty, hip and knee. But to do the really fine uh, subspecialized work that shoulder surgeons, for example, do, I think you need probably one or two fellowships. So I think that that trend is going to continue, especially as medicine advances itself and gets more technical and more high-powered. But I also think we're going to be using more tools like virtual reality and uh, things that uh, there's going to be more robotics, there's going to be augmented reality, all this stuff. So the, the landscape's going to change in terms of what's available for us in terms of technology for teaching and technology for delivering care. So I think that's going to continue to change. It's going to affect our training as well. Now, we've asked a lot of um, people on the podcast this question, but um, it's one of my favorites, so we're going to keep asking it. So uh, if you could have dinner with anyone in history, who would you have dinner with and where would you have dinner? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think um, I, I definitely probably would end up having dinner with a sports hero. <laughs> Sorry, it wouldn't be a doctor. Um, I mean, somebody like Wayne Gretzky or somebody like that, because you know, growing up in Canada, hockey's huge here, and we uh, idolize our hockey players. Now, having looked after hockey teams, you realize these people are just you know everyday athletes that um, you know. You don't idolize them when you're looking after them, but it's, uh, you know, somebody like Wayne Gretzky, Tiger Woods, somebody like that would probably be 
who I would have dinner with and uh, um, uh, it'd be just nice to kind of sit down one on one and just uh, just chat with somebody like that for a couple hours. What do you think Wayne Gretzky orders for dinner? You think he's a steak kind of guy? Oh, I think actually I know people who know Wayne pretty well, and uh, I think he's he's not the healthiest eater. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently. Where um, would you go? And, Any good restaurants you can recommend for us up north? <laughs> I'd probably just go and eat at the the lodge at Pebble Beach and just look out on the ocean while I'm talking to this person. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This has been awesome. I mean, we're um, it's truly an honor to have you on. It's been a real tour de force to talk about your research. I was, you know, I we I could I could ask you questions about these trials you did all all night, and I don't you have, your time is too valuable for that. So we're gonna have to let you go. But thank you for coming on and for everything you've done for the ACS as president. It's great. Well, thanks very much, and uh, thanks for all the work that you two do. And uh, it's really you really do it fantastic job of this podcast so um thanks very much on behalf of the society well echo pete thank you so much for coming on and i'm almost wondering pete if we should do a mini podcast series one you know several episodes dedicated to each of these studies because i agree we could talk about these um they're just such important landmark studies let alone everything else you've contributed. So thank you so much. But that is all the time we have for today's podcast. We want to thank our guests for spending all this time with us. And for all our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.